Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the architecture and design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the architecture industry through tech-first innovation. With this podcast, I am hoping to improve the industry that I am so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work with their clients and in turn, how our clients view us. It is my goal to showcase all of these experiences, good and bad. Was it the architect or the client or somewhere in between? I aim to bring my audience new voices from around our industry, interesting people with diverse backgrounds. Through shared experiences, stories, and projects, my hope is that we can improve our profession. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners, and welcome to 2022. We are kicking off year two of the podcast with a very special guest, actually a big-time guest. Chris Voss is the CEO and founder of the Black Swan Group, as well as the author of the awesome book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It. For most of his career, Chris was the lead international kidnapping and hostage negotiator for the FBI. He has saved countless lives and hostages around the world, some of which we will speak about today and many that remain top secret. During his career, he also represented the U.S. government at the G8 as an expert in kidnapping. Prior to becoming the FBI lead international negotiator, Chris served as the lead crisis negotiator for the New York City Division of the FBI and was a member of the New York City Joint Terrorist Task Force for 14 years. He led the teams of several high-profile cases such as Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahmani, the TWA 800 catastrophe, and negotiated the surrender of the first hostage takeover to give up the J.P. Morgan Chase Bank robbery. He has used his many years of experience in international crisis and high-stakes negotiating to develop a unique program and team that applies these globally proven techniques to the business world. During Chris's 24-year tenure at the Bureau, he was trained in the art of negotiating by not only the FBI, but Scotland Yard and Harvard Law School. He is also the recipient of the Attorney General's Award for Excellent in Law Enforcement and the FBI Agents Association Award for Distinguished Service. Chris has taught business negotiation in the MBA programs as an adjunct professor at many universities around the globe, including Harvard and Georgetown. He also has a masterclass series on their website, teaching many of the lessons in his book. How did I land such an A-list guest, you ask? Me too. It turns out Chris and I have a mutual friend named Jonathan Smith. So thank you, Jonathan. In this episode, we do not talk about the architecture profession per se. However, we do apply Chris's negotiating tactics to the architect and client relationship, designers and how they negotiate their designs, and employees and the employer negotiation when it comes to salaries. I hope you enjoy this and get something out of it that you can find useful and valuable. As you will hear, Chris is way too cool to be on my little podcast, but he was an awesome enough to spend an hour. I can't thank him enough. He's such a great guy. So let me, uh, let me kind of set the stage for you. This podcast is about architecture. Um, not, it's not really about like the beauty of architecture or, and it's not really about the technical aspects of architecture. It's really more about the profession as a whole. And, you know, I'm trying to bring the audience a different perspective kind of of people both inside and outside the field, um, and then showcase like the good and the bad, you know, what we do well, what we can improve on. I want it to be honest and critical of our profession and architects, but then ultimately po a positive impact on the future of the profession. That's really, you know, kind of so to kind of set the stage for you as to, you know, kind of what we're, you know, what this podcast is about. So it's not necessarily to talk, uh, you know, actual architecture itself. So 
Okay. Cool. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. So I guess my goal today is, you know, how can you as a hostage negotiator uh, help architects, uh, you know, and what lessons can we take from your teachings and, you know, apply them in what we do? And what I was thinking was, uh, you know, I want to kind of talk about your experience and kind of set the stage for everyone that's listening. Um, but then, you know, you say everything's a negotiation, um, you know, throughout your life. And I, I truly think that is the case with design professionals, for sure. Um, it's a constant negotiation between, you know, the client and the architect, um, the designer and the client and the budget and the contractor, and then the employee and the employer. So ultimately, we'll kind of come back around to uh, to those kind of things and how all your techniques could, could ultimately uh, apply here. So does that sound good? It works for me. Awesome. So, you know, before we get to all that, um, can you tell us a little bit about your your backstory? Um, I know you're, you're a former FBI hostage negotiator, CEO of the Black Swan Group. You know, you're the co-author of the book, Never Split the Difference. I have my copy from that event right here. <laughs> Actually, go. I think I have three copies of it. Um, and uh, and you have that master class, which is a huge accomplishment and, and really awesome. So, um, you know, where did you grow up? What did your parents do? You know, stuff like that. Yeah, middle class, <clears throat> blue collar Iowa, Midwestern guy. Small town in Iowa, about 7,000 people. Son of Richard and Joyce Voss, Mount Pleasant, Iowa. Uh, dad was a solo, uh, sole proprietor, solo entrepreneur, uh, was what's referred to as an oil jobber, which is a middleman between the major company and the end user, whether that end user be a gas station or an industry or a large farm, small industry, large farm. You know, his job was to get the shell products to them. So, uh, you know, grew up in a blue collar environment. My father figured, you know, if he provided his kids room and board, then they needed to work for him. Now he paid us, you know, but we, you know, we went to work and he was a very figure it out guy. Like there'd be a task. He wanted us to figure out how to do it. He didn't really believe in holding your hand and coddling you in any way. Like, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite stories is, he wanted a bigger garage in his backyard, and we had a small, little, tiny, little one-car, barely one-car garage. You know, the old one had to be torn down. I was probably 11 at the time. I think my sister was probably 13, somewhere in that in that age. You know, he hand, handed us a couple of crowbars. He said, go, down, tear, go out in the back, tear down the garage. <laughs> so, you know, because had, stuff had to be done. So yeah. I grew up in a figure-it-out environment, you know, uh, which I think is contributed to – you know what? Hard work and figure it out. Yeah. You know, um, work hard and figure it out um, because so much of life, people stop learning or people think they got to be taught or have to be shown. And the vast majority of your ta challenges, it's up to you to figure it out. Take some initiative, work hard and figure it out. And my company, the Black Swan Group, what the thing they hear me say over and over again is the only sin is not to learn. Mm. You got to try it. You got to figure it out. You're going to make mistakes. I got no problem. If you make mistakes, I got a problem. If you made it seven times in a row <laughs> and we kept telling you how to do it right, you didn't catch on. Now, now we got a problem. Yep. But figure it out and learn. Yeah. Listen, that's actually very relevant to architecture itself because a lot of what we do is figuring it out. And, you know, we throw people right out of school into projects that, you know, all of a sudden they're responsible for, you know, building a building or figuring out a detail. And, you know, you're working with them, but they've got to make their own mistakes. They've got to see why it doesn't work, you know, when you get there. Like I, I always say that I have a great example of I designed a building. I was pretty seniored at that point. I designed a building, incredible uh, TV station. It had this crazy inside connecting stair, these two floors. The contractor took me aside at one of the meetings and said, how the hell are we supposed to build this? And I said, what do you mean? I drew it. It's perfect. And he said, well, we can't actually get a physical person in on one side of the stair. It's too close. You put it two inches away from the wall. We can't finish it. We can't get to the structure. And I said, but 
oh shit, I'm screwed. You know, how, how am I going to fix that? Luckily, they said, don't worry, we, we have a solution for you. We're actually going to do it through the outside of the building and work our way through and then close up the building. So they figured it out. But sure enough, ever since then, man, do I now know how to really think about something like, oh yeah, a person physically is building this. You know, that's, that's a pretty important detail to remember when you're, when you're designing something. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. Yeah, I could definitely see how with the lack of experience, that would be an easy mistake to make. Yeah, absolutely. So so you, where'd you go to college? Iowa State University, <laughs> affectionately known back in those days as Moo U. Moo U. Because I went there because my older sister went there. You know, okay. When I was a kid, I idolized my older sister. And uh, she went to college. I wanted to get away from home. I didn't want to be too far from home. It was about a three and a half hour drive. I want to be far enough. I get home on weekends. But the old man at four o'clock in the afternoon couldn't say, hey, get over here. I got something I need you to work on right now. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, originally was designed uh, academically for farmers to go go to. They've uh, they've still changed it. But uh, to a regular semester system, but how do you design it for farmers? Farmers got to be in the fields in the spring and the fall. So what you do is instead of having two semesters, you have three quarters, if you will. The okay. summer is a quarter. And then a standalone wintertime quarter, farmers could go to school there hmm. and just and get to earn their degree by going in the win in the winter time. So it was a great school. I enjoyed it a lot. Very, very blue collar, figured out academic environment. Now, what what ultimately drew you to law enforcement? Well, I <laughs> saw a movie Instead of farming. when I was a kid. <laughs> I was 16. I saw this movie called The Super Cops. Okay. About true, true story, two, two New York City cops, um, Appealed to me two ways. Obvious one, in hindsight, I realized they had a lot of fun. They were very creative. They worked in the toughest neighborhoods in New York City. It did a lot of good. The community loved them. No matter what community you have, there, if not the majority or a significant percentage, are good people. And these guys were working in tough neighborhoods. Sure. And the good people loved them. Um, a couple of white dudes work in Bed-Stuy, which is all black, which tells you, you know, people care what you're about. They really just care what you're about. Sure. The other thing I didn't realize in hindsight was these guys were real mavericks. I mean, they didn't pay any attention to what their commanders told them to do. And I pretty much did that the most of my bureau career, ignored what the uh, senior management <laughs> told me to do. And then, so so you're in law enforcement, and wh where were you originally stationed, or or where'd you originally work? Cop in Kansas City for three years, street street cop, KCMO, not KCK. Okay. KCMO. And then uh, signed on to the bureau from there, and they, they picked me up, moved me to Pittsburgh, then to New York. Ah, okay. So you, yeah, that's right. You were in New York, and and when, how does the FBI come about? Is that directly through the New York job? Yeah, no. Um, uh, well, I was a cop. <clears throat> I was getting a little bit bored with my uh, second assignment, and my father, who paid for my college degree, and I promptly went out and got a job that didn't require a college degree. <laughs> you know, if I if that had been my kid, I'd I'd ask for my money back. <laughs> But he uh, he realized that I was going to stay in law enforcement, so he wanted me to get me interested in federal law enforcement. Introduced me to a Secret Service guy, and a ser Secret Service guy said, "Man, I've traveled all over the world with the Secret Service." Oh, cool! And I remember thinking, like, really? Like somebody paid for to send you around the world? I got to find out what that's about. <laughs> so fortunately. The Secret Service wasn't hiring at the time. The FBI was. I didn't know one agency from another. So I, you know, I signed on to the FBI. They were they were hiring a bunch of folks. I was fortunate. It was a hiring push, and I got in. Oh, nice. And that's who sent me first to Pittsburgh, and then, then New York. Ah, uh, okay. And and in New York, you were on the Joint uh, Terrorism Task Force, correct? Joint Terrorist Task Force, FBI, NYPD were really the only players at the time since, like every every agency in New York, after the terrorism events happened, 
Um, but it was just FBI and NYPD when I was there. Were you involved in any of the terrorism with, uh, or, uh, you know, with, as far as the bombing and the World Trade Center and 9-11? Were you, were you part of that task force then? Well, as it turned out, it was uh, and a precursor to all that. The first time they hit the Trade Center was 93, and I was working there then. Historians view that really as sort of the birth of al-Qaeda. Sure. The uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is the guy that organized 9-11, and it was literally his nephew that masterminded the attack in 93. Oh, wow. Okay. So I did a lot of investigation. That I'd left New York by the time 9/11 happened. I'd done investigation that contributed to that case in a small way. Okay. But the guys and gals that made that case were always very close friends of mine. Okay. Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, our our office, Mancini Duffy, which is the company I now own, um, was always in the World Trade Center. So it was there for that bombing, oh. and then was also there when 9/11 occurred. And uh, yeah, we've done, uh, you know, we did actually on 9-11, we did a whole tribute to that. But actually nobody from the office uh, died, thankfully, on in either of those attacks. Um, but the owner at the time, this guy, Tony Sharippa, credits the fact that because of the bombing, um, you know, the uh, in 93, they actually were, got stuck in the building. They weren't allowed to leave. And so oh. because of that, and, and they were also looted, the, the office was looted. So Tony immediately, the, the, the minute that the World Trade Center happened, thankfully it was on the other tower, he told everyone, we got to get out of here. And more so because he just thought we were gonna get, they were going to get stuck there for the entire day. And wow. so he ended up saving everybody's life that worked at the company at the time. Wow. Yeah. Crazy, wow. right? That's crazy. So yeah, so an interesting... Um, uh, connection with that. So, so how how do you become a hostage negotiator? How does that come go uh, uh, come about for your career? And how did yeah, you know well, you were going to be good at? Guy. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you know, you can be good at anything if you put the effort into it. I mm -hmm. mean, Daniel Cor Coyle wrote a book called The Talent Code, and his contention is nothing is natural; everything is learned. Hmm. Now, I'm not sure that that's a completely thousand percent blanket statement, but it's darn close. You know, he says that the prodigies just got interested earlier than anybody noticed and got started getting their 10,000 hours in sure. sooner. So uh, I was a SWAT guy, but I had a recurring knee injury. I, I had my, my knee reconstructed twice, as a matter of fact. I wanted to stay in crisis response. We had negotiators. I didn't figure it was hard. Like, you know, I thought to myself, I talk to people every day. How hard can it be? I could talk to terrorists. And so I was fortunate enough. You know, I had to I had to prove some initiative, pass some unofficial tests to get on the team in New York. Um, uh, initially was rejected. But then when I got into it, I was like, that was more satisfying and, you know, changed the entire course of my life, let alone my career. Wow, that's amazing. And so which are, are there some hostage negotiations that stand out to you as sort of pivotal in your career? Yeah, there are a couple. I mean, uh, and they're in, the, they're in the book, Never yeah. Split the Difference. The first one was a Chase Manhattan bank robbery. And, uh, you know, I talked a bank robber into coming out and surrendering to me. And I learned a lot. You know, the, I think the thing I learned most there was to just rely on a process. You know, get a good process. You're not, you're not going to lean into your process and constantly be working at it because they're, they're all perishable skills. You know, then a number of years later, right after we'd had a spectacular success in the Philippines, spectacular, mm -hmm. it was followed up with a spectacular failure. I mean, mm -hmm. just a train wreck of a case. A lot of hostages got killed. Two out of the three Americans died. First one was murdered. Um, uh, the second one that died was killed by friendly fire 13 months later. Ooh. But it was, you know... Um, Traumatic events, there's either post-traumatic stress or there's post-traumatic growth. And it's uh, one of the books I'm reading these days, Anti-Fragile by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who also wrote The Black Swan, which is the name of my company. <laughs> you know, he talks about something called anti-fragile, and he points out not, not that many people are willing to talk about post-traumatic stress growth. You know, you get you get if you get knocked down real hard. Uh, you can stay down or you could get up. 
And if you want to get up, you got to learn. You know what the famous Irish philosopher and statesman Colin, uh, what Colin McGregor, the MMA guy. You know, oh, I yeah. win or I learn. That's right. I win or you I know, learn. You got to learn. Yeah. You, you're going to get kicked in the gut hard. You're going to get knocked down. That's unavoidable. And whether or not you play a victim and you whine and complain and you draw people's attention, oh my, oh woe is me. Or you pick yourself up and get better. Pick yourself up and get better. It gives you a better life. Yeah, amazing. So, um, could you take a few minutes and kind of, th- you know, kind of talk through some of the main topics that are in your book? And I just kind of pulled a few in my notes that you know always have stood out to me. Um, you know, tactical empathy, mirroring, which is we could talk about that in a bit. Um, labeling, that sort of saying no, which is you know I suck at that. Um, triggers, controls, and then my favorite is um, active listening. And I think that active, I think that listening is a skill that I think if I had to take one thing from your book, is that listening is such a difficult thing to do and really be able to uh, not formulate my thoughts as someone else is speaking and therefore I'm not listening to them whatsoever. And I think this kind of right. comes into um, the whole architecture thing, which we can talk about uh, in, a, in a few minutes. But, but yeah, if you could take a few minutes and just kind of talk about each one of those kind of, you know, subjects that you that you broach. Yeah, well, it's really about great collaboration. You know, tactical empathy in a black swan method is the large umbrella that all of this stuff comes under. And when you really wrap your minds around what empathy really is which is demonstrating understanding without agreement and not expressing your point of view, but really getting into the other person's head and articulating what's there. I mean, that's, that's uh, one of the biggest accelerants for collaboration that there is. I mean, and it seems very indirect, but the, you know, the book, uh, the chapter that sold the book is really is the third chapter you know, the, the two words that transform any negotiation, when you get your counterpart to say, that's right. Mm-hmm. And nobody ever talked about negotiation where the focus wasn't yes. And yes is such a red herring. Yes, yes is most often counterfeit. People say yes because they, you know, they're placating you. They want to find out what you're what you know. They're pumping you for information. You're a you're competing bid. Your due diligence. There's a million reasons why people say yes, and it's counterfeit. More mm-hmm. often than not, it's counterfeit. I would say, nine times out of ten, it's either completely counterfeit, or laden with reservations that it's useless. <laughs> so my book started out with like, get out of the yes business, get into the that's right business. Getting a that's right out of somebody. They bond with you. They open up to you. You know, you want to you want to get out of a client what their vision is when their vision isn't fully formed anyway. And they're still fumbling around, having trouble sorting out all the thoughts in their head. You know, the tactical empathy approach is the accelerator to that. You, I mean, you get in there fast. You find out what's in their head fast. And how do you know that you found out what was in there? Because they said that's right. <laughs> You know, they, they're going to they're going to tell you, you don't you don't got to guess. There is no guesswork when you've fully run the method, the black swan method, and then you get there faster. Mm-hmm. So that that's really it. And, and, you know, you talked before about listening in any negotiation book, in any book. Listening is always listed as an advanced skill, always. And you're you're as naive as I was when I was trying to become a hostage negotiator. Yeah, well, you know, all day long, other people are talking when I'm not talking. Therefore, I must be listening. You know, n- listening is not failing to talk. <laughs> listening is not waiting your turn or even active listening. You know, that, that's why we put in uh, the word tactical. It's proactive. Mm-hmm. Like having since I left the FBI, learned far more about neuroscience, neuroscience, more important than psychology. Tactically, I could tell you how the brain works. Knowing that I could tell you exactly what black swan skills to get it, to use, to get at the heart of the matter faster than you would have any other way. Mm. So that's really what it is. It's indirect acceleration 
of great collaboration. Amazing. And, and talk a little bit about mirroring because it's, um, it's difficult to do it when, when, <clears throat> when you read it, I know when I, I, you know, took your, your seminar, I think you, I think at one point you or your, I think it was your son that was with you kind of was going around the room and trying to, you know, kind of get us on things, right. Or, or giving us scenarios and what would we say? And, and I think I picked mirroring because I thought, all right, I had read that part of the book seems pretty easy. But it's not as easy to do in in real life. Um, can you <laughs> explain it? And then how can we practice that? How can we really kind of use it in everyday life? Difficult to do. <laughs> yeah, see? <laughs> yes, it's uh, difficult to do. <laughs> <laughs> now, when I did it just now, that was a mirror, ladies and gentlemen, back home. And please do try this at home. What did you feel when I first did that? But you you question yourself, right? You, you, it kind of puts me back on my heels and go, oh, difficult to do. Why is it difficult to do? I, now I have to think of, all right, well, why? Hmm, okay. So it triggered introspection is what you're saying. Yeah. All right, now, and those of you that are watching this, you didn't see him get angry. He knew he was being mirrored. <laughs> he felt the introspection trigger. He felt like, what do I got to do to explain this? He smiled and he laughed which is not anger, you know, and, and I, every time somebody mirrors me, I always feel drawn towards it. I always, I always feel drawn, drawn to respond in a more introspective fashion. Mm -hmm. And so the mirror is just repeating one to three words of what somebody's just said. You know, when we're teaching it, we usually teach people to uh, mirror the last words because you can be so like caught off guard by what they said that your brain dumps almost everything because you're astounded, astonished. But somewhere in the deep recesses of your brain, you can say the last three words, which is a great skill to get your balance back if you've been truly caught off guard by what somebody said. Mm -hmm. And then what it does is it triggers introspection in the other side, exactly like what just happened with you. And you ask yourself, okay, so how do I explain this better using different words? Yeah. It's the great, it's a superior replacement for what did you mean by that? Yeah. Okay. Um, because it gets a stream of consciousness. It lets people know that the words that they just used helped, but were inadequate. So simply repeating the same words isn't going to work. Like most of the time, you you know, if you'd have said it's difficult to do, and I'd have said, what do you mean by that? You'd have gone, difficult to do. I mean, how much clearer can it be? You, those, those words are clear. They're not multi-syllable words. You know, you'd want to repeat the same thing only louder. Yeah. Which if somebody doesn't get your meaning, repeating the same thing only louder ain't going to get the job done. Yeah. So that's that's one of the beauties of mirroring. I mean, it, it triggers introspection on the other side. It, it makes them feel like responding with a better explanation. Mm -hmm. It's great because, you know, so if we if we kind of take it to the the whole architect, you know, client relationship. Right. And I'll, I'll kind of explain for you, you know, most architecture firms for good or for bad. Um, we sell ours, right? And, and we're a big architecture mm -hmm. firm. We compete with the biggest in the world. And so, so we're selling ours. We're not selling value. And we try to sell value in, in certain circumstances. There are some architects that are what we would call the black cape architects that kind of come in. You've heard their names like Frank Gehry and things like that, you know, come in and, um, they can kind of command whatever they want because they're the artist and people are, they're being hired for that. But the rest, um, Black cape, I love that. I yeah, love that yeah. <laughs> the the rest are you know it's a service business like a like a like a lawyer except that you know it's only a quarter of the amount of uh, hourly rate that an, that an architect gets and I think in our business if I hear a lot that's some of the frustration that that we have to deal with right so if we're going after a job and. Um, we put together our fee plan and to determine how much it's going to cost to build something. And, you know, it's basically how many people, how many hours is it going to take? How long is the project? We build this thing. It's actually quite scientific. It's a pretty proven method. We know exactly what each, uh, you know, each 
phase is going to do. Um, you know, we've done this hundreds, if not thousands of times, and therefore we know it. Um, and then, but architects, including myself, you know, we, we live out of fear of losing the job to the next guy. And I think that goes for probably 90% of the architects that would listen to this podcast or, or, or in the same sort of realm that we're in. And so getting talked down from $500,000 in fee to $450,000 in fee, that's the profit. You know, that's gone, but well, in my mind, that's better than zero in fee. And I get all these people to keep employed and keep things moving. And I love what I do. And we love designing buildings or designing interiors. Um, it, you know, there are some other things about that that drive the price and the market down, which is not good for the profession as a whole. Um, but but what what of your tactics that you, you know, sort of that we just talked about, how is best to deal with something like that? I know that's a very general way of 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 asking, but what when a client when the client does come and say, "Well, can you do this for four hundred and fifty thousand dollars without immediately saying yes <laughs> um, what 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 would your uh, your thoughts be on that? Yeah, well, you know you're gonna you're gonna respectfully explore the the uh, agreement, if you will. Um, you don't have to say yes. You don't have to say no, regardless of what the person says on the other side. You got to find out where they're coming from. Um, and so the the first best response, which is going to horrify a lot of people, but is really the best thing to do, is to say, "Wow, it sounds like the value is just not there for you," hmm. because. First of all, you got to make sure that you're not the fool in the game. You know, they're not using you as a competing bid. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody has to deal with that. So secondly, like it, you got to find out for sure what the problem really is. And you got to respectfully, you got to, is it a price issue? Probably not. Um, but it's not guaranteed that it's a price issue. If they're going to test you on a price, just see if they can test you on a price too. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it might be part of their entertainment. Can I can I get them to knock it down? <laughs> and so why not try? Especially if you guys are developing a reputation that you're gonna you're gonna toss your cards quickly and yeah. you get a cut rate job. So, you know, you first you got to find out what's going on. There are a lot of people out there that their mantra in business is do not agree to anything until the other side has rejected you or squealed, if you will, twice. Mm. The only way to test a price is to test it hard, not once, but twice. And then if you've tested it twice, it's a good price and you could hang in there. So if your response sounds like the value is just not there for you, begins to meet their criterion of having the price tested. So they want to stress test the price. They don't know that you didn't pad it. Like the the if they if they if they figure you pad it, that's what they do. Yeah. So they want to know what the real price is. You got you can't you don't have to say yes or no right away. You explore it and the first way to explore it is sounds like the value is just not there for you. Cuz mm -hmm. you got to find out is are they testing you? Do they figure you padded the price? Are they assuming that um, you know your own best business interests and therefore you you built in a margin so you could cut the price? A lot of people do that. They're still trying to figure out exactly what's going on with you. So the first and easiest way is to test the price. Yeah, absolutely. And, and listen, there are plenty of clients that understand the value and, you know, those are the kind of clients and the relationships that we really value because then they come back and they they understand that what they got for the, the, the price, whatever it might have been, was exactly what they were looking for. The experience was great. The service was great. The design ultimately was great. And most actually make money from that design, right? If design is done well, uh, the client has a lot to gain from that. If design is not done well, 
they have a lot to lose. And so that that weird negotiating that goes on for over pennies in the end is is almost nothing when it when uh, when it's all said and done as far as the construction goes. So um so th- the other the other thing I was thinking about was as a you know, kind of where I think you could be helpful in in sort of this this art of negotiation here is the designer, architect or designer, and the client, right? So the designer, the designer always has an agenda in their head, right? And they they architects and designers work for the love of the art of what they do. Um, it's very personal to them, right? They're they're not not all, but most you'd be surprised are truly working for for that right they're not working for the dollar and so when they're interacting with a client and they're coming up with these amazing ideas um you know they 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 struggle to to um see where their design and the client if they don't if they don't gel right the the designer rarely sits back and thinks, okay, well, what am I doing wrong? It's usually the opposite. It's the, you know, the client doesn't understand why this design is so much better for them. Um, and I, <laughs> you know, it's it's my work of art. It's, and believe me, these things we've 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 had, and I've done this too myself as a designer, thought, well, man, that guy just, he just doesn't know what he's doing, you know. Um, but I like to think that over time I've learned to really listen a little bit better to what the client is actually saying and why. And I and I also think that for an architect and for a designer, you know, they're negotiating with the client, but a lot of times the client is actually negotiating with their business or their cost to do something. And so we, they may not be necessarily arguing over the design, they may be arguing over you know, the cost or something like that. And so I guess the question is, how do we create, how do designers listen better? And I know we talked about that earlier, um, the act of listening, but what's your feedback on, on those kind of scenarios? Well, don't, don't rush into a decision because you'll get there quicker on it and on an indirect route and a decision that'll keep. First of all, it's a, the um, theory, the, not the theory, the, um, the point that I'm making, the strategy. You needed a decision to stick. So now how do we get there? Um, the simplest, quickest way is to get back into a black swan method skill that is really the most go-to MacGyver skill, if you will, is this thing that we refer to to as a label sounds like hmm. so when you're in a conversation even starting the sentence with sounds like you'll probably finish it pretty well now if you're actually listening versus fake listening which is waiting for your turn to talk or waiting for for holes in what they're saying instead if you if you're where you might have caught a hole Instead of going, aha, and pointing out their error, you say, sounds like X is important to you. Sounds like you've given this a lot of thought. Sounds like you're struggling with several things here. Sounds like you're feeling some pressure. You know, what you want to label is essentially the dynamic of what you feel they're expressing. And start to listen to your feel a lot more because your feel is based on a ridiculously powerful supercomputer between your ears. And the more you listen to that feel, the more you'll hear it clearly and it'll be accurate. So sounds like, and use those words to feel your way through the conversation. Hmm. I like that. That's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great method. I think you're right. It's a lot of times it's a confrontation rather than a discussion. And it kind of happens off, you know, right in the beginning there. And so that's a, that's a great method of, of diffusing it, I guess. Well, let me, give you, let me give you a quick down and dirty on confrontation, too, because one of the dictionary definitions of confrontation is a focused comparison. Now, very few people like confrontation or particularly enthusiastic about engaging in a conversation with a client that you're trying to develop trust with and have a long-term prosperous relationship. But a focused comparison, ooh, that doesn't sound all that bad. So it's frequently 
comparing what they're saying with what they're asking for or comparing their intent with what they're expressing. So confrontation is really, look, you said this and you said this. How do those two things add up? If you want to confront, you see a contradiction and your gut instinct is to say, this is a contradiction. This makes no sense. What's how, how could you be so stupid as to not see that? <laughs> well, just if you step back a little bit and ask yourself, what was the contradiction? Then you just hold the two up in front of your client and you say, how do these things add up? Secret to gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. And teeing up a confrontation in that manner maintains their own illusion of control when you actually have the upper hand. Hmm. That's great. Amazing. <laughs> uh, switching gears to the employee and employer. Um, can you talk a little bit about salary negotiation? I know you've you've kind of done a few things on that. You know, what what do people do wrong? What do they do well? And I always think for me, you know, like my A plus plus players at at my work, um, I never even want them to ask for a raise, right? I'm always way ahead of them in terms of, you know, making sure they're well compensated. Um, but there are, you know, we're, we're in a post-pandemic world right now where I think people have come out of this in a different place and pretty stressed. And, and you know, people want a little bit more for the stress that they're under. And, and, and I, as the owner, you know, I, my, my CFO calls me Santa Claus because I love when people are happy. And I love when our employees are rewarded for, for working hard. Um, not sure Santa Claus is the right uh, uh, the right name for me, um, but what's your experience in in the whole salary negotiation from not only the employee but the employer? Well, you know the the real problem salary negotiation, like any other deal, people get focused on price, and price doesn't make deals. Price will break a deal, but price is never what makes a deal a great deal. Also pertains to salary negotiations. You know, both sides should be, what do we focus on non-price terms that is going to make this spectacular? You know, an employer focused on how do I, how do I make this person happy and successful? That's going to be an upward spiral. And, and really, if you're happy first, you will become more successful. A lot of people think it's the other way around. Sean Acker wrote a great, uh, did a great TED talk, I think called The Happiness Advantage, where he says you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. So be happy first, it'll be more likely to make you effective. So as an employer, the more you pay attention to your employees' happiness, the more effective they're going to be and the less focused they're going to be on money. Now, if they're unhappy, they're going to want more money. <laughs> And you can give it to them. And because they were unhappy, they're not going to be any more effective. Like you just paid somebody this, more money for the same results. Mm -hmm. That makes no sense as an employer. You want a, them to be more valuable to you. You don't get, you know, you got to, what are your goals in life? Like a, a friend of mine uh, is a head of a uh, country for an international bank. He's a head of the U.S. International Bank. Mm -hmm. And he sits down with his employees and say, where, where do you want to be in five years? You know, and how can I help you get there? They are ridiculously loyal to this guy. They knock themselves out yeah. for this guy. So his focus is on making them happier people within substantial life goals. Not, you know, I, you know how can you sleep later on a Saturday? I mean, he, he talks to them about who they are as human beings and what their contribution to the planet is. And then the idea is to interweave who someone is a, as a person with their employment. Hmm. Then both benefit. And then they stay longer and they work harder. Now, from an employee, as an employee, look, uh, your salary pays your bills. It does not make your career. And a higher salary and a job that you were ridiculously unhappy with you are still miserable. Money does not buy happiness. Mm -hmm. So focus on how, you know, the, the critical question for an employee 
staffs their boss, how do I become guaranteed to involve, be involved in projects that are critical to our strategic future? Yeah. Now, first of all, you got to want to play in a big game. There are a lot of people that don't have an appetite for the big game, and this is not going to work if they got if they got no appetite for the big game. But if you have the appetite for the big game, plus your boss knows that you do. Oh, I got somebody who wants to make us all better. Yeah. Now that person's more valuable to me. I can pay you more if we collaborate on how to make you more valuable. That is awesome. I love it. That is awesome. Thank you. Um, so, you know, last uh, last couple of questions, just out of curiosity, um, you know, how has COVID affected what you do in your business? Well, in the execution of the business, we were already running something called EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System, and we were all already virtual because we're spread out all over the planet. Uh, so the, we pivoted quickly. I mean, we've got a specific business operating system. We didn't try to figure it out on our own. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank God we had that because we communicate extremely productively and we made, we went from having 90% of our revenue from in-person work get shut off overnight. Wow. And I mean, like literally. Yeah. We're all, all rev, almost all revenue just instantly shut off. But because we're running virtually on a system, we pivoted. Mm-hmm. We got together as a group. How do we solve this? What steps do we take? Even the brainstorming is very structured. Set priorities and execute. So, you know, we pivoted. Great. And we will continue to pivot great because of uh, we run EOS. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Any, 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 oh, all right. So, you know how good that is. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so then, you know, so, some of these issues with employment today, I mean, these are legitimate issues. Yeah. Which is, you know, equal pay for equal work. Most of that is equal pay for equal laziness. <laughs> Like, if I'm as lazy as a guy next to me, I should get paid as much as a guy next to me does. And if if your workplace is not structured to make you productive, you got an argument, you know, because I that dude next to me ain't getting any more than more done than I am. So we should get paid the same. Yep. My company, we are based on performance. We get paid based on performance. You know, we don't we don't have people's we don't have work hours mm-hmm. you know we basically have work you know the business hours we have to function in but I, you know i don't care when you get your stuff done just get it done exactly That's get it done you're nice. going to get paid you don't get it done you're not going to get paid you're not going to last yep It'll be, you know you can't hang out at the water cooler because we don't have water cooler <laughs> so you know we we the, I, i'm shocked at the number of businesses that are not operating on a system yep and if you don't have EOS, or I think there's two or three others out there. Yeah, they're scaling up. There's, um, yeah, traction. Well, that's EOS is traction. Um, right. I heard line? somebody talk about something called a line over the weekend. Okay. Which is, a, you know. They're a, all variations on, on the system. Yeah. Right. But if you ain't got a system that somebody taught you, you're kidding yourself. Yep, exactly. Nobody knows what they're supposed to do. There's no roadmap. There's no nothing. And yeah, it's difficult. I agree. Like we pivoted no problem. Um, for uh, in, into COVID, um, you know, some of our physical projects stopped, um, but ultimately they came back, which was you know, which was great. And now, I, you know, I I see COVID for us as architects and designers as an opportunity to do something different. You know, the workplace needed a change, and now it's you know we're we're trying to figure out what the right balance is. And what I've told clients, it's an exciting time because you now as as your company. You don't have to do what the other guy's doing. You don't have to follow the trend. You can actually, for once, kind of sit back and think, oh, how do I actually function? What does my company do that's different from the other guy? As opposed to two years ago, all anybody wanted was, well, that guy built that. I want it to be that. That guy built that. I want it to look like that. So now we're finally into this independent thinking of how as a company, what what am I going to use my space for if I go to an office 
why am I going there, first of all? And then what do I do when I get there? And so we have very interesting conversations with our clients. It's actually a, turned out to be a lot of fun. If I would have known that two years ago when COVID happened, I'd, I would have uh, saved a few years off the end of my life here. But, you know, in the end, it's all turned out to be a, a positive experience. So post-traumatic stress growth. That's right. Exactly. So listen, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I hope everybody that, you know, that listens to this gets something out of it. I think they will. Um, you know, I've, I've read your book. I've actually listened to it too in the car rides as well. Um, and so, you know, what, what other things would you like to promote? I know you, you do a lot of other things. So I want to make sure I get them all right, especially when I uh, promote this. Yeah, well, the gateway to everything that we have is subscribing to our newsletter. It's complimentary, and it comes out once a week. It's it's not valuable because it's complimentary. It's valuable because it's concise and it's actionable. And it is the gateway to all the different negotiation products we have. We got a lot of stuff that's free. We got a lot of stuff that when you're ready for it, it's going to cost you, and it's going to be worth it. But you got to be ready for it. So the very best way, in addition to reading the book, subscribe to the newsletter, send a text. We got a, a text to sign up function. The number you text to is 33777. That's 33777. Cool. The message you send to that number is Black Swan Method, three words, spaces between the words, not cap sensitive, Black Swan Method to 33777. Cool. Get on the newsletter. We've got it's a once a week actionable, concise article and notifications about the training. It's the gateway to our website, and there are massive resources there for you for free so the Black Swan team can meet you where you are. We train and we coach. We'll coach people. If you got something burning right now where you don't have time to be trained up. We'll coach you through it. Okay. That's wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. We'll make sure that we promote it as well. And again, thank you so much for your time. I hope I get to see you in person again uh, sometime soon. Sometime soon. Yeah, very much. Awesome. Looking forward to that as well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. All right. Talk soon. <laughs>